Welcome again to Hiawatha. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to see you guys. Well, welcome back if you've uh, been here before. Regular tenor and everything. Uh, Merry Christmas. Hope you guys are having a great December and everything uh, as well so far. Uh, and like uh, Peter said, it's uh, it's Christmas time. It's Advent season, but it's Easter Sunday. Basically, preaching-wise, which uh, is not, uh, might sound strange, but then probably does at the same time because of how much uh, Advent, or the, which means arrival, the arrival of God into the world as human, first a child, and of course grows up, but um, as a human being, is linked with the cross. Major cross, always connected. In fact, when the angel announces how, how much good news is wrapped up in Jesus' arrival uh, and into the world as a child or a virgin, uh, he says good news uh, and glad tidings and joy and peace for all people because of this event. That's not the manger he's looking ahead to with that statement. It is. I mean, God is here to rescue. Right? And that's, that's good news. So it is, but it's more. Because he says his name will be Jesus. And Jesus means, it's this Greek form of the word Hebrew Joshua, means the Lord will save. People will save, God will save us from our sins through this man, through his son. The angel says in Matthew 1. So now we're Matthew 28 in our series, the Gospel of Matthew. Now wrapping up our series, but kind of looking because angels show up twice to announce the birth and to announce the resurrection. So bookend with this, this angelic being saying, this is really, really good news. And it's not just history, but announcing just the theological history, and they are. They're announcing something that affects us, something that's for us. It's clear. Matthew 1, good news for all people because he's here. And then Matthew 28 today, good news for all people because he's risen. He's defeated death for us. And so it, it affects us, it's for us, it benefits us. It's a kingdom that brings us back into the presence of God. Some of those things play out a little bit later here today. As well. So, um, so Advent, Easter, really wrapped up. It's kind of two sides of the one coin. God is here to rescue, but hope's only kindled there in the manger. It's really blown to that brush fire uh, at the cross and the empty tomb, which is today. So, uh, today's passage is Matthew 28, 1 to 15. Next week, we'll wrap up with some of Jesus' last words to his disciples before he ascends into heaven. We call that the Great Commission. That'll be next week. But today is uh, this 15 verse passage on the resurrection and some things Jesus says and does, some things he fulfills, and the angel too speaks here. And we'll learn a lot about Jesus, learn a lot about the resurrection, what it means for us. And I want to be clear, there's a lot to say about the resurrection, just from this passage, and topically speaking, as well. And you pick up a systematic theology book, so something that we'll talk about in this theme, theologically, systemically, systematically, but more topically. It's just a big chapter, there's a lot to say here, and then biblically as well whole slew of things we could talk about. I want to approach this from Matthew's perspective, though. So we've got to hone in, got to focus. This is going to be Matthew's angle. Uh, it's not you know, contradictory, of course. It's just it's complementary to the rest of the passages in the other gospel accounts and Paul and so forth say. Uh, but it's unique. Some of it's unique. And so we're going to see what does he choose to record here from the mouth of Christ and the mouth of people and angels and the events, circumstances that tells us more about the gospel of Christ. So just have that in mind. A lot of you might be, if you're familiar with these things, there might be things you say, I wonder why it's not talking about that. You'll see Matthew is specific here with a lot, so that's going to be our approach. Just have that in mind. Matthew uh, 21 to 15, first two verses to begin. A couple of comments quickly there. Moving to the meat of the passage, uh, verses 3 to 10 is the second section, the main chunk, which will be um, after that. So, first two verses to begin. So, Jesus has just died for the sins of the world, he was buried in this last week's passage. He really died, he really buried, really in his tomb. And today, uh, the resurrection. Begin with the first, first one. 
Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn, the first day of the week, Sunday, Mary Magdalene of the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. So a couple of things here. The angel is uh, not letting Jesus out, to be clear. He's already raised. He's opening the tomb so that Mary and this other Mary can look in and see that he is in fact gone. His body's not there. He's really, really raised from the dead. And I think I said before, or at least alluded to it, that all the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the New Testament record uh, or recount at least uh, some story of angelic visitors at the tomb with slightly different details as to what they actually did. But the main point being that they're associating with God just doing amazing stuff, saving people. All throughout the Old Testament, too, when God is at work saving or sometimes judging the enemies of God's people, angels show up to either administer that salvation or a judgment or they're kind of accompanying it in a vision. Or things like this. So we shouldn't be surprised when this greatest act, I mean, all the things God does in the Bible, all the things God does in the world, this is the greatest thing. So we expect to see angels, not just at his birth, but especially here at, at the tomb. In Matthew's account, one specific thing we see is the angel actually does the rolling back of the stone. Not all the gospel accounts record that, but the angel actually does uh, roll the stone back, which would have been, humanly speaking, immovable, pretty much impossible to move at least with a few people, it would have taken many, many men uh, to do this. And once it's in place, you know, just a picture of a big slab of rock that kind of settles on the ground. Uh, you know, and then sealed with the Roman seal, too, that's another thing. But even just the fact that you get, kind of almost get in place a little easier than pulling it back out of place, it's have been one of those things. But the angel, no problem, right? Just rolls it back, and then, I like the detail of just sitting on it. Just kind of rolls it back and just takes a seat. Kind of enjoys the work of his hands, you know? Like, look what I just did. Almost to say, well, that was easy. Uh, but I think it reminds us, though, in kind of its own subtle way, passing detail, but then again, not really, of how easy these things are for God. Just easy. Uh, impossible for us. This is what Jesus says right over in Matthew. He says, oh, this thing, talking about salvation, it's impossible for people to be saved, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And even here, uh, physically and spiritually speaking, it's not too hard for him to open up tombs. So physically... The angel being his messenger, so it's really God doing this, enabling this, it's not too hard for him. And so we're going to talk about that today, a little bit of that play out. It's come up already for us almost every Sunday, but just how this plays out of Jesus is, is physically doing things, and spiritually, there's a spiritual reality behind that too, a spiritual resurrection here. Uh, we're going to uh, see employed as well. But actually, the biggest thing that I want you to see in these first two verses is in the second verse which says that uh, as the angel of the Lord descended and rolled back the stone, there was a great earthquake. Which, if you're keeping count, it's the, it's the second earthquake, the second really big earthquake in three days. Which would have been interesting to experience, right, uh, among other things, but uh, just for, for people in the part of the world that necessarily experience a ton of earthquakes, uh, this would have been shocking and uh, maybe disturbing and uh, fear-filled and so forth. But at the moment of Jesus' death, an earthquake occurs, and here uh, it occurs as well uh, with his resurrection. Now, uh, uh, earthquakes signify thematically, biblically, divine judgment. So again, going back two days ago, on Good Friday, we preached that. Uh, Jesus, at the moment of his death, an earthquake occurs. That signifies that he is being judged. He's being condemned as a substitute in our place. When earthquakes happen biblically, this is what God is a lot of times doing, and he's doing it. 
here as well. The earthquake means other things as well, but it's not less than this. That Jesus is, is absorbing sin. He's, he's being judged, though perfect, though the Son of God. He's saying, I'll take the brunt. I'll take the hit. I'll take the blow. I'll, take, I'll bear the debt. I'll absorb it for the sake of glorifying my, my, my God. He's the Son of God, glorifying God the Father. And also, out of love. I was clear. It's out of love. Love's compelling him to do this. But he, he is nonetheless bearing the torture, bearing the shame, bearing ultimately death, and bearing the judgment and separation from God as well on the cross in our place. So that happened then. Earthquake occurred two days ago. But the question is here, another one occurs, right? The question then is what's being judged here? It can't be Jesus anymore. It's finished, right? Jesus finished atoning for the sins of the world on the cross. He said that it is finished. He was actually married. Even here at this point, he's actually raised from the dead. So it's not referential to Jesus anymore. What's it referential to? What's being judged through this earthquake? What's divinely being judged from God's perspective? The answer is what? Death, right? Or don't you say Death. Death being judged, right? We see elsewhere in the book of 1 Corinthians, in one, one place that I mean, God's been going to war against death. I'm not going to read this in full context here, but uh, death is an enemy, the Bible says. It's an enemy, our enemy, an enemy that God has defeated for us, and he shares that victory with us. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 then says, and Paul speaks this to relate, the words of church think this way, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? So, so much hope then wrapped up now in this one moment, this one event, one Sunday morning 2,000 years ago, where the Son of God walked out of that tomb. Though he's really dead, he was really buried, he came back to life, breathed again, blood pulsed through his veins again, his heart started beating again, and he walked out, actual body, walked out of that tomb. Because of that, we can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with death. And this is, first Corinthians 15 is actually like a taunt to death. It's saying, death, you used to be something, but now you are nothing. Where's your sting? Where's your power? You used to have it, but now you don't. The author of life has experienced you, and he's unlocked. He's, he's made a way out from you. He's walked away. I think Acts 2 is the passage that says, and I love the way this is worded, how death could not hold him. Couldn't hold him now. Though he had the pangs of death kind of surrounding him, it could not hold him. He's the author of life as the Son of God. So had to just release him. I was trying really hard, but I had to release him because uh, he, is, he is God, the King of kings, Lord of lords, and he is the author of life. So we have hope. It's said in the church then too. It's not just something Jesus can say and does say and, and enable and enact, but he actually invites us to make this a mantra of sorts of our life. We can then have the same, we should have the same type of confidence in the face of our own, I think in others' deaths, but in the face of our own, where we can speak to it and say, even though Jesus, even though we die, yet shall we live. So we will experience death when Jesus comes back first. But even though we die, yet shall we live. And so we can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with death as well and, and just acknowledge you lost. You lost. You're a defeated enemy. You're, you're going down swinging, but there, a day is coming where I too will rise like my Savior and never to experience it. Never to experience it. That's the Christian hope. Tons of hope in that. We'll see that play out here a little bit more later as well. But let's move now to, <clears throat> to the gist of today, which is Matthew 28, 3 to 10. 
uh, continue to speak of the angel, and we'll see Jesus superior to, uh, to both of these uh, Marys, Mary Magdalene, and this other Mary that's mentioned here too. So verse 3, uh, continue to speak of the angel to be clear, describing him. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There he will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Alright, so first we'll start with the angel. First few verses. What does the angel say uh, to Mary Magdalene and this other Mary, and again, if you're another kind of keeping count of them, you've been here for a few weeks, you've seen there's a lot of Marys mentioned. It's, it's a common name in the first half. There's actually four different Marys, so this is two of them, but there are a couple more. Is it last week or before? Anyway, a lot. Oh, there's just this other Mary here. This is kind of funny that the one gets the full name, and the other one has to settle for the other Mary. Kind of a rough deal, right? Just the other one. Poor gal. But anyway, uh, she's listed at least. This would be part of the Bible. Kind of cool. But, uh, alright, so the angels... Speak to the women, the guards all tumble like dead men in fear. Interesting that the angel turns to, the, to these women and speaks, speaks kind of peace and grace to them, don't fear, and all this. But that's, that is the first thing that he says. Don't be afraid, like the guards who became like dead men. More on that later. Second thing is, uh, he actually, actually rose. So he, he said he was going to, he keeps his promises, he predicted this. It was why he was born, to die on a cross and to rise again. But then specifically, look, this is why he rolled out the tomb. Look, come see where he lay. This is important. He could have just said it, but he wanted them to look inside the tomb and see where he was laying. He was not there anymore. So this creed actually rose. It's a crucial piece to this, and it's important to a proper understanding, a Christian understanding, not just a broad understanding, a Christian understanding of resurrection. Many people in other religions, broadly speaking, might have a looser, lesser understanding of resurrection in that they might think, well, we're spiritually raised in the future, that's the hope, a spiritual resurrection alone, to some kind of heaven where our souls live, but our bodies do not. Uh, in, in many different uh, you know, individuals, could be an individual or a greater philosophical or religious system of some kind that would espouse that, but regardless, that's, that's, a, that's a worldly definition, a lesser, kind of almost resurrection in quotes. It's not really a resurrection. Christianity has a much more concrete, earthly, physical hope than that. It's come up a couple weeks ago as well. It's very important, again, to think about resurrection. It's crucial. It's a pillar. It's unparalleled, actually. You don't see it anywhere else. The angel says, look, his body's gone. So this isn't like, oh, Jesus is raising my heart. You know, kind of theology. Like, he's really still dead, but in my heart he's kind of alive. I'm like remembering him. No! His body's gone. He's not there anymore. And someday, this, this is the hope we're, you know, inviting into here. I've just, we're going to start to see this play out a little bit more explicitly later, but this didn't just happen. It's something that happened, and it, it happened to do something to us as well, to invite us into 
that experience. So Jesus was raised, and we have that hope later because, because he defeated sin, because he overwhelmed death, and we have the hope to share in that experience too. To the end, then, that we, will, that we can say someday, people will say the same thing about our bodies. Everyone in this room who believes in Jesus, or if you, you aren't yet, but you will someday, all those who trust in him alone for the forgiveness of their sins, who are in him, someday well, people will say, well, that's where so-and-so used to live. That's where, that their, their body used to be here in this tomb, in this grave. That, that, that they're dust, they were dust, but now they're not, and they've come up out of this ground, and now they're not there anymore. Come, really? Not here. Right? That's going to be this not a literal thing, we don't know, but it's going to be this figurative kind of theology of, you know, was but isn't, or used to be, death has no more sting. Death used to have power, but it's done now. So that's, that's I think that step from, this is amazing this happened, to we have the hope to experience the same thing. It, it, this is what Christians do or need to do or need to keep doing. We forget this, but we need to remember we're not just hearing a story. It's historical theological reality that, that, that creates a kingdom for us to have life in and to experience the same type of deliverance and resurrection and, and new life on this earth and that More on that later. Third thing here then is simply go and tell. It is really um, the disciples. It's really the first evangelistic message, in a sense, happens and the angel says, go tell somebody. And quick, I'm not going to say it here, but quickly, go fast. Go tell them. So the women do. They go, and on their way, they encounter the risen Jesus. Jesus just appears to them and says greetings. But what else does he say? Just a couple of things here. What are the main things that Jesus says here? First words out of his mouth, which remember, tell us a lot uh, theologically about what this should mean for us, the fact that he's risen from the dead. Did you guys notice a pattern here? What does Jesus say? Well, the exact same thing the angel does. It's repetition. Classic case of literary device of repetition here where the angel says, don't be afraid, go and tell. And Jesus says the same thing. Greetings, don't be afraid, go and tell the disciples. Happens twice. And that's a, it's a classic thing here that the Bible employs a lot. A lot of kinds of literary devices at uh, different places in narrative, but... Uh, this here, we see repetition, maybe is one of the more common ones, and we're seeing it here to help make a point of emphasis. These two elements, don't be afraid and go and tell uh, the angels that, or the angel and Jesus, are crucial to our understanding of what the resurrection means for us. Because again, one, they're spoken immediately after the resurrection, so it's contextual. But two, they're said to people. Don't miss that important detail. This wasn't just like spoken into a vacuum. Or just announced, it said two individuals like us. It's very normal people. These two women, and then later uh, we'll see next week, especially, but um, the uh, disciples. Said to people, this, this, don't be because of this. Don't be afraid because of this. Tell yourself, listen, and go and tell other people. So we're going to unpack those for a few minutes here. Uh, those two things because they're really important to understand in a greater capacity. So the, the first thing that said twice is, don't be afraid. Why is that said? Now, it's, this is not just a, a saying here, uh, and it's, it's not just a, don't be afraid of me, though that's probably part of it, especially the angel's case. I, he looked like lightning. His clothes were white as snow. He was this maybe human, anthropomorphic thing, kind of, but not human, and it was, you know, rolled back the stone. We'd probably fall like dead men, too, right? I mean, it's like, what was that? And 
so it's probably that. Don't be afraid of, of me. Uh, or, nor, but it's not just that. It's not just the circumstance either. It's more. I think as we bring in a greater wealth of scripture on this matter, and the spirit of it is, don't be afraid of anything else ever again. Because of what happened here, because of what God did, don't be afraid of me, circumstance, death, anything else. It's an invitation into that way of thinking and living and experiencing. Which, if we read this as a part of the greater storyline of the Bible, it's striking. There's a lot of things we could say about this. We're not going to say all of them. But one thing I want to take you back to the very first part of the Bible in Genesis 3. Three chapters in, God creates the world, creates people, and they listen to the lie of this fallen angel Satan, and they want to become their own gods. They rebel. I don't need God anymore. I want to take the throne myself. I'll eat the fruit. All of that ensues, and they realize they're naked, and they get extremely fearful. They hide from God. God walks around the garden and says, Adam, where are you? Nobody knows where he is, of course. Adam cries out back to God and says in verse 9, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Now it's important to see here at the top line, that was not the case before they sinned. So in some sense, the Bible talks about fearing and revering God in a positive manner. We should have that healthy reverence and fear for him. In another sense, it talks about fear as a byproduct of sin. Because this type of hiding from God and fearing him did not exist. Uh, just a chapter earlier, just a few moments earlier, before they rebelled against him and all, all hell broke loose. So they took the side of the talking snake, the side of the dragon, the side of the fallen angel Lucifer, and they rebelled, took up arms against God and committed that treason against him. Fear then ensues. So... So both, both are in play, but I want us to think more about, we should, we should fear God. No, no, the Bible talks about that. We should not ultimately, in a paralytic, paralytic kind of way, be paralyzed by this, by this fear of him or circumstance or death. And so what Jesus is doing then here is it's Matthew 28, which happens, by the way, in a garden, one in John 20, once you can see the Matthew 28, but both these things happen in a garden. As Jesus said to them, I'm ending this. Earlier in the story, there was a garden, and you rebelled against God, you sinned, and you became very fearful, fear-filled individuals. You feared God, you feared death, and good circumstance. Remember in Genesis 4, two came, one of Adam and Eve's sons just fears people killing them, and they fear they can't grow crops because of earth's curse. There's just fear and anxiety everywhere. It just runs pervasive. But Jesus says here in the garden, again, it's almost like he's reversing this curse by, because of what he did. Dying for sins, because of what he did, defeating death for us, taking those things away from between us and God. He says, Don't be afraid anymore. Don't fear. Don't fear God. Don't fear judgment. Don't fear death. Even though we experience it. Don't fear, don't fear circumstance. Don't fear anything ever again. So a couple of verses here from uh, Old and New Testament on this. Psalm 46, 1 to 3. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, no, therefore there, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. So, although cataclysmic things are happening, because God is our helper, and here it's foggy, God is broad, in Psalm 46 here, God is broadly a refuge, in a broader theological way, he's a helper. 
But we hone in on that when we get to the New, New Testament. Because when Jesus dies for our sins, he becomes that spiritual refuge out of the wilderness of chaos and sinfulness and all of that. He's, in, a, in a more honed-in way, he's a help for us on the cross. So it's fine to talk in both, the broad and the specific, but the Bible moves from the broad here to the specific. So the therefore, then, for us when we read this back from a New Testament perspective, is a much more pronounced thing. Because he has helped us on the cross, because no matter what happens, though these cataclysmic, mountain-moving things will occur in our life, it's all-encompassing there, I will not fear because God is my home. He's my shelter. He's my strength. We're very in his presence. See, he's where I am. Why should we fear when he's close to us? Then in 1 John, the New Testament, 4.18, and this is actually verse 19 as well, perfect love drives out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So, pretty blanket statement there. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love, and um, no, actually this is just verse 18. Never mind. Verse 19 I don't have up here, which defines love, which says love is what God died for our sins. That's, that's the biblical definition of what love is. Love is sacrificial, or more broadly, love's generous, love gives, but Specifically, it has to do more with God than us. God loved us to the point of dying for our sins. So, that love, that perfect love, and knowing that love, will just naturally drive out fear. If we know we're not just our sins atoned for, and death is not the end, but God has done that for us. Us. Why? Why me? But He's looked upon us in our lowest state. He's become like us in that lowest state. He's associated with us, and He's not. And in his love, the Bible's clear, his love has compelled him, like I said earlier. His love has compelled him to this. So understanding that perfect love, well, not perfectly in this life, but it will substantially, it can substantially nonetheless drive out fear and anxiety and depression. So what is there to fear? What is there to fear if we know that God is loved? So this becomes then, I think, a, a very pastoral friend-to-friend -friend, uh, message for us in the context of the church. This is part of what church, this is, you know, a slice of the pie, it's a piece to what we need uh, as Christians. And this is a long-term thing, uh, but we need to pastorally uh, gospel one another or remind each other of the gospel of Christ in a, you know, big, formal, and small, informal ways. Not just up here, but, I mean, like, in a more personal way with each other. To have someone, when we're in distress, when we're anxious, when we do fear and feel like there's just no way out of this particular circumstance, or if it's a God level, or if some of you are here today and you're fearing judgment, you're fearing God, you're fearing what happens after death, whatever it is, whatever level, we need someone to just get down with us and to know us and to look us in the eye and say, don't be afraid. As Jesus said this to people. And we have the Christ, the same Christ in us. The angel, angel said this to people. Some version, some variation of don't be afraid. Everything, and I mean everything, is going to be okay. Because Jesus walked out of the tomb in 2,000 years It's going to work out. And so we can say that, we have confidence to say that because Jesus does, the angels do. It's the greater biblical message of love and fear being kind of contradicted. Uh, but also by experience, we have hope. We know that that's not the but if death, if death is the end, we can't ultimately say that to people, right? We can't. Because even if they do get some, some kind of relief from their suffering and distress in this life, well, death's still going to 
It's still around the corner, right? But no matter what, uh, death is a defeated enemy, and we need people. This doesn't mean that, by the way, this does not mean that we won't or can't feel fear. But it does mean that we won't be paralyzed by it. When we consider Christ, we consider his love, and we, and we consider the hope we have. It's, it's not, it's, it's akin to a, a child's, maybe it could be friend of friend as well, but let's just say for a parent-child metaphor here, a child being comforted and having less fear through the love of his or her parents. And that happens. If you have really good parents who've loved you, you can probably think of it, you just kind of work at it, you know, I can think about moments in life where the circumstances have been just terrible and crazy and chaotic, but there's been this anger in the home that, is, uh, that has gotten me through. And I, I think that's a shadow, it's a small reflection of what's going on here. Uh, they're just saying, do you know you're loved? I mean, love, loved. Sacrificially loved. That will drive out that fear. And not perfectly, but you can still feel it. We will in life, no doubt. That means that we'll have it grounded through it. We won't be paralyzed by it. So it's an invitation. What are you fearing right now? What's really concerning you? What do you feel like there's no way out from? What, what's really a, an oppressing thing right here in the deepest part of your soul? It's an invitation. Jesus says it is because of what I've done for you. Follow my voice. Come out of the darkness. I love you and I'm bigger than all of your circumstances. I promise. Look at what I've done. I'm bigger than this tomb. I'm bigger than death itself. I'm God and I love you. That that's this invitation, these gospel invitations that we need to hear in our fears. We'll all have a Christian or not. That we'll all have. And if you're not a Christian and you fear God, you don't know how you're going to be reconciled, and yet the invitation is don't fear because your sin's dealt with. It's done. Jesus took it away from you. He bore it on a cross. And even death itself, he experienced a way out uh, initially, first for you, and you might like later. So in both cases, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Second thing here to unpack more is to go and tell. Which, um, that, you know, and I'll, I'll, again, I'll approach this as a, as a, this is one aspect, not the only aspect on, and I'm going to talk about Christian mission here for second Christian lifestyle. It's the center, not the only thing we talk about, I'll mention that again here in a second. It's a major piece. And I think the most important and primary response to the resurrection is, not to take away from don't be afraid, uh, but, and that we're saving our sins in that course not, but go and tell. Speak. Say something. Share. Herald to yourself and others. It's what Jesus says to us here. I think he says it, right? The angel and Jesus to the women and to the disciples a little bit later as well. That's where the church is born. People just start talking about it. And they say, okay, it happened. And then remember the question in Acts 2 is after Peter preaches the first Effectively, the first Christian sermon ever, the church was born, people say, Sirs, what must we do? What do we do with this? Peter says, Believe, be baptized, repent from your sins, turn from your old way of living and just rest in them. Find refuge and help in your sin. And they do, with thousands of people converted, the church is born, and plows through history all the way today, and here we are. Because people keep talking about it. So go and tell. So note that what he does not say. He's not saying, 
to the women, Now that I've slain death in your place and raised myself from the grave, go and try to be a really kind person and have fun in the castle. See you later. Right? Nor does he say, Now that I'm alive, go and serve the poor. Nor does he say, Now that I'm alive, you must eat certain foods, preferably organic, of course, and exercise a lot. Embrace a Christian diet. Nor does he say, Now that I died for your sins and raised myself from the dead, see to it that you all become Republicans or Democrats and have a, have a staunch political agenda. Nor does he say, Now that I've raised myself, meditate and empty your minds and pursue your mind. None of that either, right? Nor does he say, Well, I'm out and I'm raised, I want you to have your best life now. Here's two million dollars. Go spend it with joy. Right? None of that. What's he saying? Don't be afraid and go and tell the world quickly. That is the center of Christian mission. Preach, proclaim, herald, evangelize, spread good news, listen. It's word-based. Now, we're all about deeds, so is Jesus. We're all about deeds here as well that point to these greater spiritual realities. But no one in the history of the world was ever saved from their sins by being shown kindness by a Christian. It's never been done. Now, people can be attracted to that, like I was. It's part of my story. I was attracted to Christ by other Christians being kind to me, but you don't hear about the cross and the empty tomb through an act of kindness. You have to hear about God being kind to us through the Bible, through some kind of explication of what happened 2,000 years ago. And so you just have to, everyone who's, who's a Christian here, you've all had that experience. You've either read this in words and you've trusted it, or someone just told you about it. That's how people, that's how the church spreads. God gets tons of glory in that, he's made more famous, and we get tons of joy and humility, because it tells us how small we are, and how much we have to decrease and God wants to get bigger, because we're not saved by what we do, we're saved by God who finds us, and who dies for us, and who slays our enemies. We just watch from the sidelines. So this is the essence of, this is the center, never forget that, it's and some of these things were, we listed out here were kind of ridiculous, but some are really good things. Being kind, serving the poor, even caring for our bodies. Those are good Christian things. They're part of the Christian life will include some semblance of that, no doubt. But it is not the center. Nor is it, this is the more common thing, I think you hear and read and just see maybe in the church these days, because a lot of times they're placed on the same plane, like two kind of words here, of there's word-based ministry and, and deed-based, or you know, evangelism, preaching, heralding, sharing the gospel, and being Bible-centered and so forth, and then there's just the, the being kind, helping the poor, being humble uh, to others, putting them first. Love. Both are crucial, but we have to understand them properly in their relation to themselves. We have to do this. So words are on top, and deeds are on the bottom, and deeds point to and deeds point to words. Paul says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing. Faith does not come from deeds, he says. He actually says faith comes from hearing things about Christ and our trust and faith in So what does God want for our life? He wants us to hear about him tirelessly, to believe and trust in him, and to tell others about him that they might believe as well. It's really simple. Now there's more to say, but nothing less than that. That's, that's the foundation of Christian living and Christian mission is that. The end of John, another one of the gospel accounts in the New Testament, the end of John, it says, I've written all of these things in the Bible 
especially about the death and resurrection of Christ, so that we may know that you have eternal life in his name. And others might hear it through you. And so the whole point of, of everything in the Bible, especially in the gospel accounts, is that we might know that God is good, full of love, and that this is the means by which he saved lost sinners from death. This is how he's done it. And so in that we have spirituality. Uh, we, we, we don't say when we live this way that we, we protect ourselves from saying the cross and the empty tomb are not that important. We protect ourselves from that way, some version of that way of living. And we actually are, are in that way full of the Spirit. This is a little bit uh, on the side, but I ran across the quote again. One of my favorites of all time from uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who uh, said that the truth, speaking of Christian spirituality broadly, the true test, I'll have this on screen, so I'll just say it here. The true test of Christian spirituality is how much we stand in awe of the grace of God. As you look at your heart, as you look at other, other churches are doing what we're doing here at Hiawatha, people you know well, and you're trying to learn from them, people are maybe ahead of you a bit in the faith and so forth. But we gauge and have the scorecard of spirituality. We're trying to score it in our own life. We keep score. The very top should be how much do we stand in awe of the grace of God? How much are we compelled by his love? How much does it move us and change us? That is a spiritual person worthy of adoration. And we, and we tend to flip that sometimes and think more about other things that speak in tongues. You know, do they do a lot for the poor? Do they pray a lot and meditate a lot? And, and it's great, but the greatest test of spirituality, the greatest test, is how much, if you look at that, look at your, praise God if that's where you are. Do you feel like, I've never been more in love with Christ, more compelled. I've never been more in awe of the, that, this, that God would it all think about in his capacity of loving you. God gave you that. Praise be to God. And we thank him for that. Because he sees other people say, that's where I want to be and pray and be where those people are. God will move your heart. And maybe that's what the spiritual Christian you would be, word-centered, in love with him through what the scriptures say, what people say to you, and that you would listen then and engage in word, that word-based ministry so others can be truly spiritual uh, as, as well. All right. Last paragraph, Matthew 28, 11 to 15. Now, uh, this is something Matthew includes that's unique uh, to all the gospel accounts. It's really interesting. Uh, the, the curtains are pulled back here a bit, and we can see what's going on. Right as this was all happening, what's happening was the guards, who aren't as much dead men anymore, they got up and they went in their fear and told the chief priests and elders and Jews what happened, the people who helped crucify Jesus, and, and all of that, what happened, and what their conversation was. This is very interesting. So, Matthew 20 and 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests of the Jews and all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were all sleeping. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews too. A lot we can say here about this section that's, uh, again, unique to Matthew, but not the main focus. I want to make a couple of comments here about this, and I'll explain why it's here, why it's here at all, in a 
Bible in just a minute. But a couple of observations here. Just you know what's going on. The chief priests here from the guards, who again were at the tomb, guarding it so that things like this a body-stealing enterprise, and of course the resurrection wouldn't happen, but that didn't work. So they come back and, and share with these uh, chief priests and elders what happened. They mentioned the angels, they mentioned the stone moving away, all that they saw. But then the, the response is shocking, right? It's just it's full of hard-hearted disbelief. They say, well, here's the rumor we're going to start. He's not alive. His body was stolen by the disciples. End of story. Go spread it. We'll protect you from the government, the pilot. I mean, you didn't do your job right, so they're probably worried for their jobs and their lives because they failed at this. And so all, we'll satisfy the governor's here. She'll be fine. Just spread the story for us for some money, and they go and, and do it. But if you've been here throughout the festivals, especially, there's some irony here, right? Because what just happened last week? What are the chief priests doing? I kind of hinted at this, but remember, last week in Jesse's passage, if you're here listening to this, the chief priests and elders, they're worried about Jesus. They're worried about the disciples stealing the body because they knew that Jesus predicted his resurrection. So they set the guard. They sealed the tomb with the Roman seal. They made it impossible for, for this to happen. I'm not going to read that here just to get an idea if you weren't here. The next day, Saturday, so between the Friday and Sunday, Jesus is buried. That is, after the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest disciples go and steal him away until he has risen from the dead. And that last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers, go. Make it as secure as you can. It's a key phrase there. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting the guard. So the, the irony here is that the very thing that the chief priests and the elders made impossible to happen is now a rumor that they're spreading about Jesus not being alive. You guys see that? So they're basically, you know, they're basically saying we made it effectively impossible for the disciples to seal the body. Impossible. Guard, seal, huge snow, no one can move. Impossible. But now we're seeing still about it. It's like, it's kind of another way of saying, this really happened. Because this is ridiculous. This is the only thing, this is their only theory, the only thing they're saying. It's another way for Matthew to say, just so you know, this is happening, and this is the ridiculous counter, kind of counter-gospel, because this is being spread too. Realize, there's things being preached, right? He's alive, is being preached, and it's made up. Still dead. Disciples have the body somewhere. We don't know where. Because someone got through a highly trained guard of soldiers and moved a stone that couldn't move and broke the Roman seal. And they did it somehow, but we just don't know. But that's being spread. Preached. Preached. It's a gospel. Preached. Preached. False gospel. Preached. And the true gospel is alive. And it spreads up until this day. Nothing's changed in 2,000 years. Right? We, we've, we have two messages that effectively are out there. Jesus is alive, he's raised from the dead, everything he said in it is true, or it's all fabricated. The disciples probably started the religion 2,000 years ago, sold the body somehow, and started the whole thing themselves and spread into this day. That's the two things, and it started right back here at uh, the very beginning. In a lot of ways, it's the only argument they can make, uh, you know, they, they can't say, the New Testament documents can't be trusted, like a lot of people say today. Uh, because it's not written yet, and it's happening in real time. Right? It's not the, the luxury, if you want to think about it in that, those terms. 
of making up other theories. This is the only one they can make, and it's a terrible one. They didn't even believe it themselves. So they can't say, you know, the New Testament documents can't be relied upon and, and all of that. All they can say is the disciples must have stolen it, as Matthew records here. But there's tons of immediate problems with that, right? A lot of these we've already mentioned, but just to be clear, I must inform here. The first problem is no one who started the rumor even believes it happened. You know, it's like making something up and then starting a rumor and then, and then you, you know it's fake. But other people actually buy into it, hook, line, and sinker. And just how... Sad that he is, you know? The person making it up doesn't even believe it because they heard the story, right? They, they're fabricating it. They heard about the angels. They heard about the stone. They heard about what the guard said. And so isn't it incredibly hard-hearted here? And it should be a, quite a scary thing because this happens all the time when the gospel is clearly presented to someone and people just discredit. We, we've all done that, right? Until we didn't, we all were in that way. We can't be true. Or, yeah, I'm not sure. Or, there must be some other theory in resurrection here. And so until we, you know, didn't, until we crossed the line of the sand and laid that behind us and actually believed the gospel happened, we were all there. But happened here, hard-heartedness and disbelief, and it happens uh, today as well. But again, number two, if, even if one believed, how are the stone the guards overcome by just a few young men? Impossible. And just where's the body? Even if it was, like, miraculously somehow stolen, which it couldn't be, but even if that happened, just go find the body. Prove the resurrection wrong. Where are they really going to take the corpse? Go and find it. Just end Christianity right there, which it would have been. The body's found there. There is zero Christianity throughout the last few It wouldn't be here today. So the resurrection has to happen. It proves everything right. And it is the only hope, according to the scriptures, that we have tied up in our as well. Uh, future problems, he appeared to many, uh, Jesus did, 500 at once. Uh, the Bible tells that, says that in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, the disciples later died for this as well. People died and are tortured unto death for lies. I mean, they were most were. John wasn't, but the rest we know from the Bible and the tradition that they were all killed, all martyred for it. And maybe one loony is tortured to death for a lie, but not 11. And not others throughout the street uh, who are their disciples and are their disciples and are their disciples who are persecuted unto death, eaten by lions, sawn in half, skinned alive, crucified upside down. All these things that happen to disciples, that you don't die, you don't go through that for a lie. So it's a it's a classic where there's smoke and fire argument. The fire being the resurrection actually happened, and the smoke being disciples died for this. Torturous deaths. How do you explain this didn't happen? There's no fire. How can there be smoke? Smoke. There are other smoke arguments too, but again, I, we're, we're honing this in on what Matthew said. This is the one argument, kind of false gospel or rumor that Matthew is apologetic. It's a Christian defense. He's addressing this one. So I want to hone in on this one and kind of spread out here a little bit to debunk it in the ways that the scriptures view it, just sort of arguments from logic as well. Uh, but there are other ones uh, too. But the point, the point in this is why Matthew includes this section is to show that, one, the rumor was started by hard-hearted liars. Two, that it's a ridiculous argument, one that could never happen, and one that they didn't even believe. So why should we, why should we believe that if they didn't? And then third, the resurrection actually happened, just as Jesus said it. That's the only logical and theological and philosophical and historical conclusion we can make. Where's the body? How do you explain the smoke idea that there's a fire of the resurrection had to happen? 
And uh, we, get, we get to see behind the curtain here of the hard-hearted liars who are starting this false gospel to ditch it up. And then, sadly, we've all kind of believed, uh, and some of us more than others, and some of us still believe in the room, but uh, regardless, we've all bought into that. Until Christ shows up on the road to Mary Magdalene and Mary and says, Greetings. And to Paul later in the book of Acts, remember how he shows up? He knocks him off his, what's he on? What's the horse? Knocks Knocks him off the figurative horse, say it that way. On the ground and says, Here I am, believe. I'm the Jesus whom we are persecuted. He's converted. So until Jesus finds us and debunks the ridiculous theories about what might have happened, or just our ignorance, we could just be ignorant about it. We could just never know about these things. Whatever it is, Jesus appears and says, No, it's real. I am real. I'm the Son of God. I love you. I really died. I was really buried. I was really raised. And in all of that, I enact God's forgiveness for you. I take care of your sin problem. I take your fear away. I bring you back into the garden of this presence here. No more separation. And so what does this mean then? A couple things to wrap up. What does this mean for me? Just to, I've already been there, but just to summarize a bit. You know, we are at Christmas time, but it, this is why Advent is so full of hope. This is why. Without this, it wouldn't be, it'd be an interesting story, but you know, I've said before, I think that, I've heard other people say this too, I think it's helpful. That if there's, if there's Christmas without Easter, it's really a damning idea, right? It's, very, it's a very scary and judging thing because, hey, God is here. Oh, but we're still in our sin. That's never a good thing, never a good equation or relationship. In the Bible, if that happens, not a good thing. But praise be to God, he's fixing the problem. And so it, it, because of it came to human beings, one step closer to human beings, we can actually look at them. Have a face-to-face -face conversation. This is God in the flesh. Talk to them. Touch them. And they're healed and clean. It's a step in that right, positive, what's God up to direction. Then you get to the cross. And again, hope's kindled back there, but one of this brush fire here now where all kinds of hope because no more sin, no more death. No more barrier. Also, this like path opens up and I can walk to him now or better yet, he's, he's walking to me. He's coming to get me. He's rescuing me. This is, this is where this Advent idea is, is in all the good Christmas carols, well, okay, one time I'm being biased here, but most do, is that they talk about, they start with the manger and they get to the cross, uh, right in the same song, and Peter's done that this morning too, the band's been, been great. I want to make sure you connect those, connect those dots. Matthew 27, I read a couple of uh, Sundays ago as well, remember the resurrection's contagious, this idea that Jesus, when he dies, people actually come out of their tombs as well with so it says here in Matthew 27, after the resurrection, tombs were open from the earthquake, and then people just woke up. It's almost like they couldn't help it. People couldn't help but just kind of wake up because his resurrection was so all-encompassing. It, it was a first fruits idea. It, it was the first of many resurrections. So what, what Matthew 27 is getting at, it's hinting at, is this is what's going to happen. Jesus' resurrection made more possible. Spiritually now, physically, later. We are raised in we have hope for that physical one later as well. So the Bible says live like it. And live as though it's true, without fear, and so forth. And then a couple of things I don't have up here, but just a few extra things. Again, I'm kind of shooting on the hip here. There's so much to say. But this principle of grace I want you to see is how do we get here? Uh, you, you, this comes up in other gospels too. How you see, you never see when the resurrection happens, you never see Mary Magdalene or Mary or anybody else figure it all out on their own, and then go and find Jesus, like, hiding behind a tree in the wilderness or something. Like, it's not, this isn't hide and seek. 
Jesus finds people. You see on the road, Mary and Mary are walking to tell the disciples, not really looking for him, caught up in this good news, but going, and then Jesus just appears and says, greetings. Which is an amazing thing to say. If you think about God saying this to people, he's not saying, I can't believe you did that again. I'm so disappointed with you. Or, really? You're still stuck in that sin? None of that. Right? He appears and says, hello. Greetings. Because he died, because he raised, God can talk to us like we're his children. And 1 John 3 says, and that is what we are. So don't forget it. That, and it's by grace that we're saved. So this is, the, this is the type of intimacy now that we have, no matter what you, how much you feel it, you just have. But we can experience, and should experience as well as Christians, it, we have an intimacy with our truth. He's inside of us. He appears to us as greetings. He's very normal. I mentioned the other Mary thing before, but just the, the, the other Marys of the world, the people that are just no name, no namers like us, just average, unintelligent, normal people. He, you know, he finds us on the road and he reveals himself to us. And he says, I, I love you, my child, I've died for you. How are you? Come to me, worship me, rest with me. And again, we'll be in the garden together forever. It's going to be this new earth. It's a better garden than Adam and Eve had. Uh, a garden city, though, nonetheless. And there'll be no more death or pain or shame forever and ever and ever. So, so don't fear. And whatever that thing is for you today, that thing you're fearing, uh, I'm praying for this for you guys and myself all week, and I'll pray again for those here. But Jesus says, don't fear it anymore. Don't be paralyzed by it. Don't be concerned. There's something much better, greater than your circumstance. Uh, not that he's aloof to it. He's just in all of that. Don't fear. Uh, I love you deeply. I am your God, and may that be sufficient for you. And this is this call we get, right, in the Bible all the time is, am I sufficient? Or do you kind of like me, but do you want something else as well? It's this call away from over-concern, over the over, just in all of our crap. Jesus calls out of that and says, in the midst of it all, I trust in you, and I will redeem you. So, this is the call. Where are you today with him? Remember the two Gospels? that are held out, he's alive and he's not. Uh, what does this mean for you as well? There's always that call to look at you. I just want to invite you guys to consider it one last time and wherever you are. And don't think, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm okay. Been there. It's just not a good response. And think, regardless of where you are, what about today? How are you going to be more word-based, less fearful, more evangelistic, more of a reader of the scriptures, more compelled by love, not by trying to be a good moral person, but just compelled by God is loved with an immoral person like me. A very, a very immoral person. He's loved and died. How are all those things going to take more shape in your life? The imperatives here are just don't fear, believe, and go into uh, Other than that, it's just well, God is in But rest in that and do the imperative. Let's pray. God, thank you for today and your grace in all of our lives for the gospel of Matthew 28. And we pray that you would, your perfect love would cast out fear. Uh, and just bless us now as we respond. Jesus' name.